Revolution may not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. I'm your host, Brittany Gallagher. This is our first podcast, but Digital Village has been traveling on radio waves to Alpha Centauri since 1995. Digital Village was started by Dorn Barons and Rick Allen on 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles, a Pacifica network station, where we are 100% listener-supported. Unfortunately, earlier this year, Dorn Barons passed away. But Rick and I are continuing on, bringing you stories about the internet and technology, how they're shaping culture, changing every aspect of our lives, how it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side, and how maybe we can prevent some of its abuses. In our first episode, we'll be joined by contributor Lydia Lawrenson, founder and editor of The New Modality a publication covering experiments and culture. Later in the show, she'll be joined by art provocateur Danielle Baskin, talking about some of her fun art pranks. Something that I do value with my pranks and stuff is that anyone can stumble into it and then become part of it and just hang out and and understand what's going on and participate too. In the later part of the show, we'll be joined by our combating climate change correspondent, Dr. Addison Colleen Stark, of the Bipartisan Policy Center to talk about the renewable energy boom in the heartland. While I'm home here in Iowa this year, I can look out my window and see fields of wind turbines spinning and generating clean electricity that's being pumped to Chicago, out to New York, and out west to Denver. But first, the internet. It's shaping our everyday lives, but most of us are stuck with our traditional ISPs. What if we could have more options? Enter SpaceX's Starlink. The news around Starlink isn't all positive, though. To talk about it, the great and some of the challenges, I'm joined by our space correspondent, Dr. Casey Hanmer of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena and writer of the blog Misconceptions in Space Journalism. Here's more about Casey in his own words. My name is Casey Hanmer. I uh, work at JPL is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for NASA, but the views that I express reflect my opinions and my opinions alone. I have a PhD in theoretical physics from Caltech and spend my copious free time thinking about how the space situation in which we find ourselves is evolving. What is Starlink? Starlink is a new SpaceX product that is being developed out of Redmond in Seattle. I don't have any special information about Starlink. I am merely an enthusiast who observes from the outside. But um, thanks to my background in physics and my general interest in space, I feel that I was able to kind of integrate a lot of the general ideas um, behind Starlink in a way that was more accessible to a general audience and explains what's going on. Uh, SpaceX, uh, its main business is launching things into low Earth orbit, but it's reached the point where its capacity has really outstripped demand. And so at this point, really the only thing it can do is to turn around and become its own customer. And that's what Starlink represents. It's an opportunity for SpaceX to launch tens of thousands of their own satellites. And, uh, and what would you launch satellite to do? Well, the most lucrative thing a satellite can do is communications. When you start out with like that, very quickly, if you follow the math, you end up in a situation where you understand that the, the, the future for the internet in general actually is uh, satellite-based communications. How does Starlink work? Starlink differs from traditional internet satellite communications or traditional satellite communications in, in really one key way, which is that uh, traditionally operators of satellite communication networks uh, such as we used by telephones in the 1980s, would, would launch uh, a couple of satellites to geostationary orbit, and then those satellites themselves would cover an area roughly equivalent to a third of the Earth's surface. And anyone who was communicating within that 
part of the Earth would have a, a fixed dish on the roof of the house or building that would point at the satellite and would route phone calls or data to that satellite and back. The Starlink situation is different because Starlink wants to serve much, much more data to much, much more people. We're talking literally millions of times more data. It has to come much closer to the Earth and also the signals will move more quickly since they don't have to go quite as far. Because each satellite is literally as close to the Earth as it can be without burning up in the atmosphere, it can't see a third of the Earth. It can only see a local area a few few hundred miles wide over the surface of the Earth at any one time. And because each satellite is only able to see a small part of the Earth, if you want to cover the whole Earth, you need a lot of satellites. And the number of satellites you need varies depending on how your assumptions work, but SpaceX has planned to start with 600 or so and then rapidly scale up to tens of thousands of satellites, which will all be in, in slightly different orbits. And there'll actually be multiple satellites in each orbit. And then within each of these orbits, the satellites will not only communicate to users on the ground, such as people using uh, the internet on their computers or cell phones, and also to data centers on the ground. The satellites will also be able to communicate between each other using laser communication, which is essentially the same technology which is used to send laser pulses through optical fibers, except instead of going through fibers, which have to be laid under the ocean and dug through holes in the ground and tunnels and stuff, we'll just shoot through empty space and, you know, incredibly high rates of data. And so the network of satellites that is surrounding the entire Earth will form this kind of mesh, which enables data to go anywhere on the Earth, essentially as quickly as it is possible to go uh, for data, since light moves more quickly through vacuum than through glass, and then land wherever it needs to go. And so there's this decentralized, ever-changing, ever-evolving network of, of satellites that are all talking to each other as well as talking to people on the ground. One of the challenges with the internet that we have now is the current infrastructure is very expensive, making the industry close to a monopoly. But launching things into space is also pretty expensive. How is Starlink going to disrupt telecommunications? Uh, it is true that uh, telecommunications infrastructure is incredibly expensive and uh, in some ways a natural monopoly. And certainly that's the way that it's, it's kind of fallen out in almost all countries on Earth, where a, a strongly regulated government, so subsidized in many cases, monopoly or government-run monopoly uh, provides telecommunications infrastructure to, to ordinary people. Um, and until the mid-1990s, it basically worked out okay because everyone had a phone line and most people used it at a fairly predictable amount. But since then, we've seen exponential growth, like on the order of 25% a year in data traffic flow on the internet. And in order to continue to have the ability to, to monetize these networks and to monetize this, this data flow, what we've seen, especially in the United States, is de facto duopoly or three or four companies, but they're basically divided up the entire country by area, with the consequence that if, you know, unless you happen to be in the, in the center of a city or something, the odds of you having a choice in who provides your internet is zero. And, uh, and when there's no choice, there's no competition, when there's no competition, the quality inevitably suffers. And so it turns out that because SpaceX has a, a bunch of incredibly uh, clever and visionary engineers, they're able to deliver internet at a rate that is competitive, not just with other satellite forms of internet, as you would have to use if you're on a remote ship or a plane or something, but it's actually competitive with the exorbitant prices that companies like uh, Time Warner or Comcast charge in the United States, which means that, that even though launching satellites, even if you do it SpaceX style, is still incredibly expensive, it can actually serve internet to rural, remote, and uh, less dense suburban areas like this year in a competitive way, which means that all that value that essentially these monopolies had been keeping to themselves is going to be unlocked and uh, subject to competition. I mean, it's good news for SpaceX because they're going to generate revenue, but it's also good news for consumers because they're going to have access to, to get back at that value stream. It's also good news for people who live in countries where there might not even be one choice for broadband internet. You know, Comcast sure ain't great in most places, but it's better than nothing. But in a lot of places, really nothing is 
all that's there. And so as parts of the world that have access to the internet are able to participate in ongoing industrial or financial revolution that the internet has enabled, for billions of people around the world, that's not been possible. You know, they haven't been able to get their software, they haven't been able to get their products, they haven't been able to participate in this global economy. But if they're able to get access to the same quality internet as anyone else, then it doesn't matter anymore that they're in remote parts of the world that just happen to be unlucky and nowhere near an optical fiber cable. They can have access to the same markets, the same knowledge markets, the same product markets. And I think it's a really powerful uh, forcing function for good things. There have been a few critiques leveled at Starlink, specifically around space debris and also the negative impact a mesh network of satellites can have on ground-based astronomy. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's fair to level criticism where criticism is due. But at the same time, we also have to realize that the echo chambers and so on we hear on Twitter, uh, the peanut gallery there is often a great way of uh, elevating marginalized voices, but it doesn't necessarily represent a uh, consensus viewpoint. And so it's very easy to fall into the trap of assuming that the loudest voices are the most important or or represent the only voices. But that said, there have been a number of criticism leveled at SpaceX regarding Starlink, and most of them, sadly, kind of with the point of view that the engineers at SpaceX are completely oblivious and would never have thought of these problems themselves. Uh, thanks to Joe Bloggs on the internet who thought it up first. Now they have this problem to solve. Well, I'm reasonably confident that the engineers behind Starlink are aware of these problems and have thought about them a lot. And actually, if you look closely at the way that the constellation has been engineered, it really t- seems to take a lot of this stuff into account. Regarding space you know, debris or, or space junk, this is a real concern. And actually, it's a snowballing one in some ways, because as depicted in the movie Gravity, since there's no air resistance really in the higher parts of low Earth orbit, debris there that is created can orbit for thousands or tens of thousands of years and basically spread out and create this cloud of shrapnel that destroys everything in its path. This is a bad outcome because it's very hard to clear that up. It's not impossible. There are, there are various ways that can do it, but it's very hard to clear it up in ways that are not analogous in some ways to anti-satellite weapons. In order to deal with this particular problem, Starlink has taken a different approach where they they fly the satellites at extremely low altitude, between about 330 and 550 kilometers, where even if the satellite was to die the day it got into orbit, it will still deorbit within only a few years, which drastically reduces its chances of causing collision, that particular satellite. Of course, there's tens of thousands of satellites, which tends to bump the odds up a little bit. But at the same time, the satellites also have propulsion capabilities, active maneuvering. SpaceX is pioneering a technology for automated air traffic control or or space traffic control, which is a necessity in this case. And then the satellites themselves are are designed so their deployment and and so on doesn't generate huge amounts of debris. So most traditional communication satellites are in geostationary orbit where the booster stage that gets them up there will often end up in orbit forever, just dumped floating around and after some years will start to crack and flake and break up. And as a result, a lot of the debris that we find around the Earth is actually the result of pieces of rocket hardware that have been left in space. And, uh, and SpaceX doesn't do that. So they tend to deorbit their, uh, their booster stages and they tend to avoid using explosive bolts, uh, which can sometimes create debris. And so I feel like they've, they've actually been pretty responsible in that regard. Of course, there's, there's going to be screw-ups, but I think overall it will be a, a great net positive. What about the perceived impacts on ground-based astronomy? So the astronomy concerns are well articulated. And astronomers are are particularly dedicated people. They they stay up all night uh, to get their work done. Telescopes are enormously expensive and enormously competitive to get time on them. So the people who operate these telescopes, who use them, typically incredibly attuned to things that that make them have a good day and a bad day. And and there's all kinds of things that can affect the ability of telescopes to do their work. And that includes light pollution from cities and airplanes. It includes whether the moon is full or not. It includes weather. So if there's clouds, obviously it's a bad day for observing. The most famous observing sites in the world are actually in places such as tops of mountains and islands that have exceptionally good conditions in all these respects. Now there's an additional problem they have to contend with, which is in in addition to, in the past, there's an iridium flare every day or two. Now you have the 
potential for having hundreds of satellites crossing the sky at any one time. And this has been quite controversial because observers in various places have been able to get these uh, photographs of these satellites on their cell phones and, and going through the frame of their images, and it really presents a, a terrific challenge for them, even if they were somehow able to create some image processing technique that could cut out the satellites and, and avoid them. It's obviously a huge headache. Now, I don't think it's the end of the world as far as, as astronomy goes, because the satellites themselves are only visible from the ground, uh, when the ground is in shadow, but the satellites themselves are still in the sun, which tends to occur typically um, the best time for seeing satellites of all kinds, not just Starlink, is an hour after uh, dusk and, and an hour before dawn. And depending on where you are on the Earth, if you're in particularly northern latitudes, that can extend. And so there's a situation they're facing now, which is that um, in, in northern Europe, for example, all through summer, the satellites will actually be visible most of the night. That said, the sky itself will remain bright most of the night, and in extreme northern latitudes, it's actually the white nights, which is to say the sky never gets dark. So there's a, there's a trade-off here. If you're an astronomer who's interested in bright but, say, distant objects, then, then you could still observe them, even if the sky is bright, and having a satellite shoot through the frame is, is a pain. But if you're an astronomer who's looking at extremely dim objects, well, you're hosed anyway because of scattering in the atmosphere. So in order to overcome this, really, uh, SpaceX has announced that they are taking uh, measures with the designs of the future generations of these satellites. Of course, there's a multi month lead time in producing these satellites. So it's not like they can uh, turn on a dime and, and update the design in a matter of weeks. But certainly their design is much more responsive than, say, the Iridium network, where the, the first generation of satellites had these uh, horrible flat panels that created these extremely bright flares that actually, in some cases, even damaged astronomical equipment. So they, they're able to essentially create a matte surface on the satellites, paint parts of them black, and then orient them to avoid uh, flares uh, intersecting on parts of the surface of the Earth where there are a high density of telescopes. So I think that there's a bit of give and take here, right? The, the, the astronomers are attempting to share this resource, which is the open sky, with, with everyone else who wants to use it. And, and no one is seriously advocating that uh, aircraft stop flying over these uh, major observatories. No one is seriously advocating that uh, no one fly satellites ever again. And no one is seriously advocating that all astronomers pack up and go home until they can go and do all their astronomy on the moon. In essence, there's, there's a shared resource here. And, and every, if everyone can kind of give and take a little bit and, uh, and collaborate and, and get together in a, in a positive spirit, then, then actually there'll be a huge amount of positive good that can come from it. Right. So what's some examples of some good that can come from Starlink for astronomers? An example of what good can come to astronomers, even though the satellites themselves are, are moving through the frame, the satellites will provide a much higher quality internet at remote observing sites than has currently been available. So in places like Antarctica or, or Chile or whatever, it will no longer be necessary to, re to lay an optical fiber cable dedicated uh, to the observing site. The satellites themselves will be able to, to take data away from the observing site in real time. So this enables a much, much higher data rate. The other thing is that the Starlink satellites themselves are incredible, versatile, and cheap platforms for in-space observing. And of course, not every astronomer would really want to use a, a space a telescope. But uh, for the ones that do want to use it, the cost to develop an instrument that can fly into space will drop by several orders of magnitude, which is a big change, right? It's a big difference between being, say, a, an X-ray astronomer and getting you know, your one telescope every 10 years or one telescope every 20 years and having the opportunity to actually fly instruments one or two times a year or any sufficiently well-resourced high school can even build and fly an instrument on a satellite. The future will find us whether we want it to or not. The question is, how well do we go about rationalizing and dealing with these challenges? I think when all is said and done, it will not be the end of astronomy as we know it. It will not destroy the night sky forever. Personally, I got up and took the baby outside and watched the Starlink satellite train fly overhead uh, the same day it was launched from my home in Los Angeles, and I thought it was awesome. I'd never seen anything quite like it before. And for someone like me who's really passionate about space, seeing this spear of of bright lights shoot across the sky told me that, that business as usual had been disrupted. And for someone who's who like me, like many of your listeners, no doubt, are passionate about space exploration, disrupting business as usual is a good thing. 
I'm really only one person who tries to stay up to date with the news. But if you're listeners, there's thousands of people out there who all have their own insights. And and really, the, the amazing thing about something like Starlink is that it gives the ability for all these people's dreams about what they would do with such a technology to actually be tried. And everyone will benefit. And so the challenge I have for your, your listeners is if you could install a Starlink terminal tomorrow or next year, in addition to streaming Netflix, what could and what would you do with it? With all things like Starlink, which have enormous promise and enormous potential, there comes the fear and the risk that it could be screwed up. And so I really hope that all the people involved in actually engineering and building and deploying Starlink do their homework and get it right the first time. That was Dr. Casey Hanmer on SpaceX's Starlink, a constellation of satellites that hopes to bring better internet to the masses. You can read more of what Casey has to say on Twitter at CJ Handmer. From the internet, well, to culture, the new modality is a new publication spearheaded by Lydia Lawrenson. Here's more about the new modality from Lydia. I have done a lot of different things with my life, and I think all of them have positioned me very well to do the new modality. One of my first jobs out of college was that I worked for a game design studio called White Wolf Game Design. They make a lot of nerdy titles like Vampire the Masquerade, which people in the audience who have heard of them will be really excited about. And from there, I did a lot of different book development work and game design work. I managed a bookstore in Chicago for a while. I took some time off and served in the Peace Corps. But over the course of all this, I was creating a blog called Clarice Thorne, which was about sexuality and gender. And so in my mid-20s, this blog actually ended up getting pretty popular. Like I was getting calls from Oprah's office and invitations to speak at universities and all these things. But this was back in 2008, 2009, when it wasn't really clear if blogs were a thing. And so I didn't really perceive it as a job necessarily for the first few years that I was doing it, especially since I was working under a pseudonym and I was covering very stigmatized topics like sexuality and gender, BDSM, polyamory, sex workers' rights, that kind of stuff. Fortunately, while I was doing all of that, fortunately for me, I managed to accrue a lot of digital media skills. And when I freaked out and couldn't figure out how to make any money because I was a freelance writer, I moved to San Francisco and started working in Silicon Valley in digital media innovation. So I worked for a crowdfunding company, which got acquired by Facebook and is no longer with us. And I worked for a social media bookmarking company, which got acquired by Google and is no longer with us. And I worked for a number of other startups, and including News Deeply, which is a pretty well-respected journalism innovation company. And a couple of years ago, I got recruited to help The Battery, which is a social club here in San Francisco, start their magazine, which was an arts and culture and philanthropy magazine based in the Bay Area. And it was a print magazine, which surprised me because my whole history isn't digital, and I was like, why would I do print? And then doing the print magazine really helped me understand both the advantages of the form, and as I researched it more, it helped me understand that there's an actual business model there where you sell an object for more money than it costs to make it. And then you make money that you can use to pay the people who worked on the object. In digital media, this sounds like a revolutionary business model, but in print, it's a real thing. So... This year, I'm launching the new modality to kind of bring together a lot of my different interests from over these years. I'm really interested in innovation, obviously interested in sexuality and gender, but also sort of broader cultural questions about what innovation means in culture. 
So the tagline of the new modality is experiments and culture. And we want to do the beautiful, high-end, fact-checked publication and community about experiments and culture, covering things like immersive art, psychedelic art, um, psychedelic culture on the art side, covering things like polyamory or co-living on the lifestyle side, covering things like universal basic income on the society side, and just trying to highlight all of these weird, messy, crazy ideas that push culture forward and the communities that create those ideas. The goal of this community is to be a community, not just a publication, and you are invited to join. That was Lydia Lawrenson on The New Modality. In her first segment, she's joined by art provocateur Danielle Baskin. Listen to this. Danielle, can you tell us a little bit about your art? Yeah, I, um, I, I do lots of, I guess I would call it late stage capitalism pranks. Yes. I've started like 24 different weird products and services that I sell on the internet, kind of making fun of corporate culture in some way. I have a service called Extra Employees where you can hire people to pretend to work in your office and sort of do corporate, corporate yeah. LARP. So uh, did people hire this service? I have to make it into a real, it's sort of a fake service now. I have hired friends to sit in on me. This was years ago. Now I have real employees. <laughs> <laughs> but starting out, you want to seem like a large entity. Right, <laughs> on right. phone calls, you have your head of international sales there, uh-huh. you know. Okay. But I have, I've hired actors for various projects, so uh-huh. kind of merging the two things. Yeah, yeah. I guess also like the voice chat app that I work on is uh-huh. most, what started out as sort of a joke where you can pretend to be someone's boss. This has evolved into a non-joke, people just train talking to each other but it started as like what if you got a call from a stranger and you could role play as like each other's manager what is the project people ask you most about the project that people ask me about uh, most frequently is probably oracle open world i hope everyone listening or maybe i don't hope this but i'm sure people listening know that or about the company oracle which is like a large software company every year and this has been going on for probably 30 years they have oracle open world which is a giant conference at the moscone center in san francisco i've been uh doing tarot card readings for like 12 years Mm -hmm. and when i saw the giant oracle signs coming in i was like oh it'd be funny if like this was just a conference for oracles (laughs) and then i i saw the domain name oracleopenworld.org was available they have com so i have the org (laughs) And I tried to, like, create a conference existing at the exact same place and time in the Moscone Center for divinators and for, like, soothsayers and for anyone trying to learn divination or who wants to practice in the field to show up, like, wearing capes, like, looking magical. And we just go in with fake badges. And Um, you have at least once gone and camped in the Oracle conference. Is that true? That was Dreamforce. That was not. That was Dreamforce. Dreamforce spends a lot of money on making a very realistic national park. They have fake rocks, trees, and I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll just treat this like a national park, uh, not be interested in anything that the vendors are trying to tell me and just camp out here. And so I set up a tent and it took a while for people to notice, but I just like took, I just like went in the tent and like laid down and people were walking all around me. Did anyone try to stop you? Eventually, after maybe an hour, well, I put it on Airbnb too. That's that's uh, that's like what probably alerted people. I listed the tent on Airbnb because there's also this phenomenon when there's any like major conference in the Bay Area, like all the Airbnbs sell out. And people are like putting random things on Craigslist. I was like, well, why not stay in the net? Na- we have a huge national park. Why not just stay in a tent here? So it was like only $50 a night, super affordable uh-huh. compared to other Airbnbs. Totally, yeah. And I, I took all these shots. Like I took shots of like, oh, it's moments from the meadow 
where you can learn about how to become a trailblazer for Dreamforce and don't like commute to the conference, just like stay in there. So that got removed from Airbnb pretty quickly. And I think, I don't know what happened, but like some security person was like, hey, where did you find this tent? They were trying to figure out who put it there. They didn't think I did. And I said, oh, you know, this is my tent. I just thought it, this was a good spot to set up. And they said, you can't be here. I was like, oh, do you recommend another air? Do you recommend another another campsite? And just tried to keep playing. But I think like it would be effective if lots of people did it next year. What about LineCon? San Francisco has lots of long lines so for various things like the cable car and bakeries and cafes. San Francisco loves waiting for brunch. Um, and people complain about lines, yet they still wait in them. Me and some friends thought it would be funny to just wait in the lines just for fun. This is a conference that takes place in lines. So like we go on a tour of lines, started out with a small group of people, but we've done it three times and it has attracted a larger line. So kind of wherever we show up, there's a long line. I think 49 people showed up last time. And in each line, there's a talks about line-related topics, like lines of poetry or like the history of power lines. Someone gave like the history of America online, like, lo- like supply chain, like anything. Uh, someone did analysis of drawing lines that map out our lives. And there's two talks per line and we go to like six lines per day. So yeah, there's like 12 talks each time. And someone read excerpts of Moby Dick, uh, a chapter called The Line, uh, while we we're waiting for the cable car. And then just strangers can join. So I think like, I think something that I do value with my pranks and stuff is that anyone can stumble into it and then become part of it and just hang out and and understand what's going on and participate too. That was Lydia Lawrenson of The New Modality, a new publication on experiments and culture, in conversation with known art provocateur Danielle Baskin. You can find out more about The New Modality at thenewmodality.com. To close out the show, I'm joined by our combating climate change correspondent, Dr. Addison Colleen Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll talk about the renewable energy boom in the heartland, but we start with what brought Addison to focus on climate change. I grew up on a farm out in rural Iowa, where I was surrounded by bioenergy, and I was surrounded by really the impact of what we were starting to see was the early days of climate change, recognizing that weather patterns were changing and that I wanted to go do something about it. I was raised a farm boy and knew that I wanted to become an engineer one day and try and find a way to engineer our way out of that problem. Interestingly enough, it's led to me working on policy. So I found myself, after working for a decade on technology development for climate change, I work at a place called the Bipartisan Policy Center now, which, as the name suggests, means that I'm trying to find a way to bridge to both sides of the aisle and find a way to actually solve climate change in a bipartisan manner. Not the easiest engineering task. What's going on in the heartland of America with renewable energy? What I really wanted to talk to you today about and looking at this, thinking about what we can be thankful for is the fact that when we look at the the fight to address climate change, to deploy renewable technology, that it's actually happening in a lot of places in America that perhaps your listenership doesn't think about. For example, today, my home state, the state of Iowa, is number three in the country for total deployed for renewable electricity on the grid. It's number three in its percentage of renewable electricity. Also, if you look at the total amount of deployed renewables Texas is by far the leader where they have more than 70,000 gigawatt hours of electricity that was produced into 
2017. So really, this might come as a little bit of a surprise that in a lot of ways, California is far from leading in this quest to be able to increase renewable energy technology in the U.S. So when you say renewable, what exactly do you mean? In this case, the numbers that I'm quoting are wind and solar energy and then some degree of biomass for power. And we're neglecting right now hydro in these numbers. So hydro is an important resource and is really dominant in the Pacific Northwest and New England. But we recognize that there is limited availability to expand hydro resources moving forward just because many of the mountain rivers have already been dammed previously. So this is looking at the new renewable technologies, wind and solar, that have come on the grid. So this doesn't include something like quote unquote, clean coal. Once you start to get to talking about things like clean coal, you're starting to talk about the broader question, what constitutes a clean resource? And this could start to make us beg the question, does nuclear energy count? Does natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration count? And it really goes back to the heart of what is our policy goals when we're looking at addressing climate change. And so while it's not renewable growth, and I wouldn't classify that as renewables, they are technologies that need to be developed because fundamentally we need some sort of other technologies to balance renewables on the grid. It doesn't happen today, nor will it happen tomorrow, that the sun will shine for 24 hours. We'll go for weeks without wind in the high plains, and we need to be able to develop complementary technologies that are low carbon to be able to help support a high renewable grid. You mentioned California being behind in the new renewable energy sources compared to a state like Texas. Could you go into a bit more detail about that? One thing that I really want to highlight is the fact that today in the U.S., the total amount of renewable energy year-over-year growth from 2015 to 2017 was 15% a year of increase in total renewable electricity generation. And what's interesting about that is if you look at the comparison of states, today in California, the growth rate has only been about 10% per year, whereas in Texas, it's growing at more than 20%. It's actually 23% a year, increase year over year of total amount of gigawatt hours of renewables generated between 2015 and 2017. So I think it's important to realize that it's not necessarily the coastal states that are leading here. It's the growth rate, and that's what's critically important. It's not about where we are now. It's about where we're going and where is the fastest growth happening is really happening and what some might think of as not the natural place for this to be occurring. And the reason I think that you see today Iowa having a leadership role in wind penetration and Texas growing very quickly is the freedom that landowners have there to be able to build on their own cropland, to build wind turbines, and have minimal input from local opposition, really a lack of nimbyism because of the more traditionally what might be considered a conservative approach to property rights. And it's something that's important to think about when you look at some of the challenges that California's had with uh, nimbyism slowing down the rollout of high-speed rail and other sorts of projects like increasing of housing capacity and siting to be able to have increased density near public transit. There are a lot of things that we need to find a way to overcome in not just those kinds of density questions, but also in how do we quickly roll out renewable energy technology. To give you a sense of the scale of what we need to do nationally, if you do kind of a back of the envelope calculation, if we're going to hit zero net 
emissions by 2050. That's the equivalent of taking about one gigawatt worth of emissions off the grid every four days. Or if just to put it into scale, that's like building 1.75 new nuclear power plants every week from now until 2050. This is a scale of infrastructure rollout that is unprecedented, and I don't think it's truly been grasped right now how fast we need to do this, and every way for us to be able to develop and build quickly matters. And that's everything from robust innovation policy at the federal level to state level intervention to allow for building of new transmission to bring wind power to LA to develop new solar sites and to allow every roof to be pasted in solar. There's a lot that needs to be done to allow for the very quick deployment of these technologies over the next 30 years. When it comes to states we don't expect being leaders in renewable energies like Iowa and Texas, like you mentioned, is this coming from federal policy? Like where what's driving this? Two major things have really continued to drive the deployment of solar and wind technology. And there is a big component, which is federal policy, which is called the PTC and the ITC, the production tax credit and the investment tax credit, which essentially have made it cost competitive today for wind and solar to be the cheapest technologies to build today relative to making a choice to build, say, a coal power plant or a combined cycle natural gas plant that oftentimes, particularly in sunny and windy locations, it is the economically logical choice to build that. And we didn't get there just not by having robust innovation policy. Because we had tax credits, deployment credits for the past decade, it's really allowed industry to drive down the cost of building and manufacturing and constructing these renewable technologies all across the country. And today they have become the cheapest forms of marginal cost of electricity generation available. It's a mix of federal policy, but then also the blessing that Iowa has being on the eastern edge of the Great Plains, where it has a very strong and continuous wind resource, similar in the western expanse of Texas. But also down in Texas, there's continued expansion of solar as well because it is part of the Sun Belt. So a lot of the ability to build out renewables is tied to what are the natural renewable resources available locally, but then also having smart innovation policy to help deploy these new technologies and to de-risk them was critically important in build out of the modern renewable energy industry in the U.S. That's interesting. Has President Trump done anything to try and change that? The president has very limited influence right now in tax policy like the ITC and PTC. Actually, some of the strongest proponents of maintaining these policies are the senior Republican senator from Iowa, Chuck Grassley, and then Ron Wyden from Oregon is also a senior member of the Senate Finance Committee, and they're very invested in having these broad-based policies to help support these critical industries. Because if you look at it, the wind industry has become incredibly important to the farmers of Iowa as a way to diversify their land holdings. No longer are they just selling grain off of their fields, but they're also selling electricity. And it's a way to diversify and improve the overall utilization of their land 
and to decrease the risk year over year of the potential of failed crops. In a way, this diversification just makes economic sense. And the leadership, even senior senators like Chuck Grassley, who is not known as a climate hawk, is a fierce defender of these types of renewable policies. Fundamentally, in federal policy, there still exists a a true shared powers, that Congress has been very bullish about supporting energy R&D deployment policy like these tax credits for renewables, and that even though there is a very real policy difference between the White House and Congress at this point, the separation of powers has meant that Congress has often won this battle because they have the power of the purse. That is very nice to hear. I'm particularly thankful for the broad-based growth of renewable electricity around the country. I think the important piece is the fact that it's growing in different parts of this country that most people don't expect. While I'm home here in Iowa this year, I can look out my window and see fields of wind turbines spinning and generating clean electricity that's being pumped to Chicago, out to New York, and out west to Denver, and knowing that it's a lot of the innovation that's happened here that's powering our future and hopefully will continue to. That was Dr. Addison Colleen Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center giving us something to be thankful for, the increase in renewable energy in states like Iowa and Texas. We've covered the cons, but mostly pros, of Starlink, fun pranks with Danielle Baskin and Lydia Lawrenson of The New Modality. But that's it for Digital Village's first ever podcast. I'm Brittany Gallagher at In A Quantum World. And you can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast and following us on all things social using at Digital V Radio. You can find us on our website there as well. A special thank you to our soon-to-be regular guests, Dr. Casey Hanmer and Dr. Addison Colleen Stark, and our contributor, Lydia Lawrenson. And thanks to Evo Jansen for all of our music. We'll be back next week with How to Protect Yourself Online, looking at tech entrepreneurship from a different perspective in the first segment of Joanna Miller's A View from the Outside, and much more. Until then, see you online. 